Hey guys, welcome to episode 170 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope that you are doing well. This this whole intro got ruined because in our first initial take, I said that I wished that everybody, I can't even do it, had a happy and healthy new year and that every wish they have for the year comes true. Listen. I, and then I, John made me the whole time okay i was just trying to say that it was know, a little corny it I was know. a little corny uh, you know but we do mean it yeah but it was the way that you said it it was just i couldn't get behind it we wish that all of your dreams come true and we want to thank you for joining us on this podcast and by the way that this took us 12 times just, just yeah. so you know okay we finally calmed down we're honored that you let us go on car rides with you and accompany you at work and on your walks See, I was having this whole grateful moment with the audience, and you've ripped it from me. I'm sorry. But we are very grateful for you all. That and is true. <laughs> we want to start off the new year good and with a crazy episode. The episode I have for you today is absolutely wild. I can't wait. That's why it's actually a day late, because this research has been insane, because essentially it's it becomes two cases. Really? Yes. Well, I'm really excited, actually. Well... With that being said, let's get into why you're here. John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Of course I am. In the early morning hours of December 15, 1991, an 81-year-old rancher in Roy City, Texas, went out to start his day. He was getting older, and his body wasn't as quick as it once was. But the man had never shied away from a day of work in his life. It was a cold morning. 20 degrees colder than it usually was in December around the city of Dallas, which is close to where Roy City was located. The first thing that the man did in the morning was walk the perimeter of his property to check on his cattle. And that morning, he was sure to bundle up extra. Around his property was a wide dirt road. The old county road was a relic that told the tale of a simple past, much like the man himself. A time before the town was not connected to major highways and byways or taken over by industry. And the people of Roy City took care of themselves and each other. But by then, in 1991, if you found yourself driving down that dirt road, it meant that you might have gotten lost somewhere. Everyone, that is, except for the old man, who traveled each morning to make sure everything was good with the cattle. As the man walked down the road, he saw in the distance a vehicle parked off to the side. He thought that this was odd because no one traveled this road by car. There was no reason to any longer. There were other shorter and more convenient ways to get around. And if anyone was really ever down the road, it was to make it into a makeshift lover's lane, but they wouldn't be there that early in the morning. He thought that maybe someone needed help with their vehicle or might need directions. So he approached the car. As he got closer, he noticed that no one was sitting in the driver's seat. Maybe somebody had abandoned the vehicle. When he got to the car, he peered inside, hoping to get an indication as to what was happening. When he peered inside, he found a woman lying face down across the back seat. She was wearing nothing below her waist. She had clearly been murdered. She was wearing nothing below her waist, and blood 
and brain matter an inch thick lay on the floor beside her. She had clearly been murdered. The man jumped back, terrified at what he saw. He ran back to his house and called 911 immediately, faster than he ever thought he'd ever run again. It seemed the people of Royce City weren't looking out for each other much anymore. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. So I have to say, great intro, by the way. You are. It really painted a very nice picture. Thank you. First thing, right off the bat here, it's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibes. It's like, uh, remember the the movie? I don't know which one because well, it's been the like remake. a million. You're talking about the remake with Jessica Biel. Yes. yes. Okay. Because yeah, you know I like that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but that one's, I mean, it's pretty intense. You have that girl who, you know, shoots herself and then you got mm-hmm. the brain matter everywhere in a car. And then it's like, it is Texas. So this is kind of weird. You're having yeah. some similarities here. It is definitely a really difficult crime scene to come upon. So that was probably the last thing that man expected to see and it, it is a very brutal one. So shortly after the man placed the call, a deputy from the Hunt County Sheriff's Department arrived at the scene. He called in the homicide and requested detectives at the scene as well as a crime scene unit. He observed that the woman was young, that she had a shotgun wound to the top of her head. The blood that had pooled on the floorboards beneath her, as well as how cold she was to the touch, indicated that she had been there for a while. The deputy also noted that he didn't think the vehicle was the location of the murder. Like, she had been murdered elsewhere and then placed in the vehicle because there was no damage from a shotgun blast evident inside the car. So not only was there no damage, but there was also no blood spatter, which, of course, would be expected from a shotgun wound. It did appear that she had been shot at a downward angle so even on like the floorboards or the the bottom of the car in the front and in the back there was nothing except for this pooling of blood that had happened because of where her head was located so they were pretty sure right away that this was not where she was murdered but where she was placed i mean that makes sense too right because you have to think i mean it seems like if, if it was like in a downward motion, she might have been on her knees and then killed like that in that kind of fashion. Right. Right. But then if that was to take place in that car, you'd have damage that would probably go through the floor of the, tr- of the vehicle if it was done in that car. Oh, yeah. On top of the fact that you would have spatter everywhere as well. Right. It would have been a messier scene, so to say. Once the detectives and crime scene analysts arrive, they notice some pretty odd things about the crime scene. First, the posing of her body and her clothing indicated that a sexual assault took place. Not only did she not have any clothes on below her waist, but her shirt and bra had also been pulled up, exposing her breasts. However, there was a detail that they had never seen before in a sexual assault case, or any case for that matter. The clothes that the victim was not wearing any longer, her socks, underwear, and jeans, had all been folded in a very neat pile. Jeans on the bottom, then her underwear, 
And then finally, her socks had been rolled up and folded over in a neat ball that sit on top of the pile. So who would have taken the time to do this and why? Yeah, that is a little odd. Like, why would you leave that there? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Upon further inspection of the vehicle, the detectives found a lot of valuables in the trunk. So this had not been a robbery. One detective at the scene made the comment that they felt like the person that had done this was trying to mislead them with a lot of odd details. First, this was not the scene where the murder had taken place. There were no defensive wounds on the victim at all. Her body was posed, her clothes folded neatly, and it was not a robbery. And the way that this was all set up, like you could go in one direction, but then there was one detail that was off. Then you could go in another direction, and then there was a detail that was off. And that's what they thought the killer was trying to do, was to present to them a case of organized chaos so they would not be able to develop a theory as to who did it. The best clue the detectives had was the car. It had belonged to someone, right? And that's how they were going to figure out who this person was because the woman had their purse missing. But they were theorizing this had nothing to do with the robbery. It was more they want, didn't want the identity being figured out right away. So they searched the registry of the vehicle, and it came back as belonging to a woman named Sandy Harper Dial. Immediately, the investigators were able to find out where she lived, and they called law enforcement in the area. Those officers went to the Dial home and informed them that Sandy's vehicle had been found. And that was when they learned that Sandy had been reported missing. She'd been gone for 36 hours, and they didn't know where she was. The detectives then sadly informed the elderly couple that a body had been found in Sandy's car. Shirley and Herbert Harper were devastated. Shirley called her younger daughter, Janet, who was six years younger than Sandy. 28-year-old Janet Holly had not really slept the night before. Her sister was missing, and they had no idea where she could be. And when her phone rang, she hoped that Sandy had been found. But her mother gave her the news that most likely Sandy had been murdered. Shirley and Herbert were in bad shape about the murder of their 34-year-old daughter. When Janet got into town with her husband, it was the younger couple that went to identify the body. Janet wanted to spare her parents from that. But when it came time to look at the photographs the medical examiner had taken when performing the autopsy, Janet hadn't been able to see her sister that way. And it was her husband, who had a background as a paramedic, who verified that the woman that had been found in the vehicle was indeed Sandy Harper Dial. This was a major violent crime that potentially spanned the distance of several towns, So the Hunt County Sheriff's Department made a call to the Texas Rangers, who immediately assigned an investigator to the case, John Anderson. Anderson was a Texas man through and through. Exactly what you would picture when you thought about a Texas Ranger, Janet Holly would later recall. Anderson called Sandy's family in hopes to learn as much as he could about her as fast as possible. Janet took his phone call and she told him everything that he wanted to know. 
She said that there would have been no reason for her sister to be in Royce City, that she lived in Garland, Texas, which is about 20 miles away. She said that her sister had two daughters, ages 9 and 12. She had married Lynn Dial, a maintenance worker, when she was 18 years old, but that Lynn had been abusive to her sister and that she had, within the year, gotten divorced from him. Once the divorce was finalized, Lynn was ordered to pay Sandy child support of their two girls, of which she was awarded custody of, and he got visitation. Now, this is a little bit of a complicated situation because the Harper family and the Dial family, they had grown up together. They were all very much friends. So when this couple gets divorced, it's pretty easy to stay amicable between the two, like the grandparents on both sides, the aunts and uncles on both sides. But then when this issue of the payments for child support come into play, that's when things are going to get really complicated. And because, you know, Sandy had this major life change after her divorce, and that further complicates her relationship with her ex-husband, Lynn. Sandy had moved into an apartment with the girls in Garland, close to her parents. And Janet was so happy for her sister because after years of what she believed to be mistreatment, she was finally finding her happiness. Towards the end of her marriage, and then after she left Lynn, Janet said that Sandy found her confidence again, that she had recently lost 150 pounds, and she began dating a man named Leon Andrews, and the couple were engaged to be married. In fact, they planned on getting married on the following Valentine's Day. So basically to the day that she disappears... They were supposed to get married in two months. That's really sad, isn't it? Like you have all these wonderful things happening for you and then all of a sudden that's gone. Now that these kids don't have a mom, it's like it's so devastating when something like this happens and it just sends rippling effects all over the place. Right. The loss is so monumentous. Yeah. And then you have to know that these kids are going to be affected in every possible way not having their mom. Oh, you have no idea. Like. That's the understatement of this case. Wait until we get into what happens to the family. Oh, it's devastating. But that didn't mean that things were all sunshine and rainbows for Sandy and Leon. They were happy. They were in love. But their exes most certainly were not happy. Lynn was furious about how much child support he was ordered to pay. And he was very vocal about that. But it was Leon's ex, Loretta, that had been the most angry. As Janet spoke to Ranger Anderson, Leon sobs and wails of pain at losing the future that he thought he was going to have with Sandy were audible in the background. Janet would later say that she felt bad for Leon, and she really much liked Leon and appreciated this new life that he was offering her sister, but she also wanted the murder of her sister to be solved. So she had no problem being very blunt and transparent. Yeah. Transparent with Ranger Anderson because she wanted him to know everything. And not that that's at the detriment of Leon, but most certainly his ex-wife. So Janet said that Loretta had threatened Sandy before. 
I mean, that's big. And we should know that, right? Yes. And what this reveals is a somewhat complicated relationship. It does appear that Leon had been going through a divorce when he met Sandy or a separation from Loretta. And Leon was kind of questioning whether or not he wanted to try to make his marriage work with Loretta or attempt a new relationship with Sandy. So there were many instances. There was a good chunk of time where Leon was kind of going back and forth between the two women. And of course, when that happens, that pits the women against each other. Which I find so bizarre, right? Because in in a case like that, I mean, you know, just speaking the truth here, you would think that we'd put the blame more on on the dude here because, you know, of course, now this Loretta lady is now mad at Sandy. Correct. And it's it's almost like, no, you should be mad at your husband for kind of having one foot in and one foot out. And, and that's never good for either sides, right? Because it keeps everyone in limbo. No, and I, I think it's because Loretta wanted to try and make things work with her husband again. So if she was mad at him for it, then that would put an end to their relationship. So if she's just mad at Sandy and and says, well, only if you would leave my husband alone, he'd be with me. Well, it's kind of not how you want to keep somebody. But also that's what allows their relationship to exist. Well, unfortunately, um, we live in a world where it takes two parties yeah, um, to want the same thing to make it that work. So if one side is the only one that wants to keep it together and the other side doesn't, there's nothing you could do there. And that is what happens. Leon eventually decides that he wants to spend his future with Sandy. And he does in a, and I guess a show of his commitment to Sandy, he one day shows her the divorce papers that he signs with Loretta. And, you know, that had been a good amount of time ago. And now these two are engaged to be married. But Loretta's still not happy about it, as you can imagine. I mean, there's no possible outcome where the other side would be. So, but this is actually very good for the ranger to know this. It's a big piece because let's just say that there is possible involvement here. Well, that there's your motive. So it's good to have that in your back pocket in case we do find any connection to uh, this, you know, like Loretta committing some kind of uh, crime or whatever, allegedly, of course. But that is a smoking gun. Right. And Janet said that Loretta had actually repeatedly threatened Sandy. Once she threw a beer bottle at her apartment door, she screamed at her in public about how she was sleeping with her husband. And it was troubling and upsetting to Sandy who was shooken up about those incidents. And it has been reported by many parties that Sandy never actively got involved in the disputes that Loretta was starting. She kind of just tried to ignore the woman and was embarrassed by the public displays of, or the public outbursts, you could say. I'm sure. All of that had been a lot for her because Sandy and Janet had grown up in a very religious and restrictive setting. So a woman screaming at her in public about who she was having sex with was definitely a lot for Sandy, especially because she had just kind of left Lynn, who wasn't, I I couldn't find any reports of him being physically abusive to her. I don't know if that's true or not, but definitely emotionally and uh, mentally abusive didn't, you know, make her feel good. So it was just kind of like a flashback for her, I could imagine. Oh, yeah. And listen, regardless of it, whether it be physical or or, or 
uh, verbal or whatever, you name it. I mean, it's in my eyes, it's all the same. So it was hard for her to get that divorce. She had been raised differently, of course. Her parents supported her, but like it was hard for her and her strict religious belief system to get this divorce from Lynn. And she felt a bit guilty about it because she did have two daughters with him and their families had been close. And Loretta screaming at her in public made things even harder. And it had been hard for her to accept that she was allowed to be happy with Leon. And that was just, you know, Janet, that stuck with her because she said like her sister was such a good person and she couldn't think of anyone who wanted to hurt her except for Loretta and because of this situation. And it was very complicated. Janet had a few questions for the ranger. She wanted to know if her sister had been raped. But he told her that they would have to wait for the autopsy report to be released by the medical examiner the following day. And then he asked Janet what size shoes Leon had. She asked him and then let him know And the ranger shared with her that they had found footprints at the scene and they just wanted to eliminate people. But, he shared, the footprints had been left in the mud were small footprints and it seemed as if the shoes that they were wearing had an underslung heel and a pointed toe. Cowboy boots. Ah, okay. And it's Texas. It is Texas. (laughs) So that is basically everyone in the state of Texas But the issue here was that the the footprints were actually of very small feet, about a woman's size seven and a half. Okay, that's a big clue. Yes. I I think so. So that's why they asked about like the size of Leon's shoes, even though they knew probably that wasn't going to happen. Like a woman's size seven and a half would be like a man's size like six. So it's very small. So they're thinking that it's really... A woman, which is going to make Janet, Holly, Sandy's sister, really think that this was Loretta. When the autopsy report came back, it stated that Sandy had been shot from a downward angle at close range. The 20-gauge shotgun that had been used had actually been very close to making actual contact with her head. That meant that she had either been forced down on her knees, like you said, or she had been sitting down when she was shot from behind. There had been no physical evidence of sexual assault. None at all. None. The detectives thought that this was very odd because if there was no sexual assault, that meant that an individual went through a lot of trouble to make it look like it had taken place. Like they had posed Sandy's body in a way that was very exposing and made it look like a sexual act had been completed um or done and she was actually menstruating at the time and whoever did this removed her tampon and put it on the floorboards next to her so they really had gone out of their way to make it look like something like that had taken place so being disgusted with this crime scene and what this person had done they really wanted to start talking to people to to solve this because this was extremely painful for the family, and it meant that someone was on the loose that was criminally sophisticated in a way. So they had three people on their suspect list already. The first person they wanted to speak to was Lynn Dial. 
ex-husband has a motive. He's not happy about child support. And now Sandy had just gotten engaged to Leon. So they're theorizing in their head, could it have made him angry that he would now be contributing financially to a two-income household? I mean, possibility, right? Then they wanted to speak to Leon. They just had to clear him because he was close to Sandy. And finally, the suspect that intrigued them the most was the final one, Loretta, Leon's ex-wife. She never liked Sandy, um, didn't like that she was in a relationship with Leon, and maybe Leon asking Sandy to marry her was what brought her over the edge, the agitating factor. All of the clues they had pointed to a woman, the smaller boot prints, the clothes being folded, the fact that Sandy was posed in a way as if she was sexually assaulted but hadn't been. So she hated Sandy. And they thought, this is our best option, but let's get kind of the story and let's eliminate Lynn and Leon before we talk to Loretta. Right. And I think that's a really good process to go through at this point because you do want to rule out your top three or top four suspects here because these are people that are close to the family or or have been involved as, a you know, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a combined family here. We're talking about exes. So it's right. possible. Blended. And, and, and blended families, yes. And I think also, you know, you do have Loretta who has been vocal and has thrown beer bottles. The only thing, though, is, you know, there's a big difference between beer bottles and murder. And staging it like yeah. that. But the person who did this seemed angry. Very. So first the detectives brought in Leon, who, since the discovery of Sandy's body, had not left the side of Sandy's grieving family. Leon told the detectives that he was completely in love with Sandy. He said that they were always together, and when they couldn't be, they would talk on the phone as much as they could. He even used his breaks at work to call her. In fact, that had been part of his alibi. He said that he was at work on Friday, December 13th, And while on break, he tried to call Sandy at 6 p.m. He called just as Lynn was picking up the girls for the weekend because it was a Friday. Friday the 13th, I add. And Sandy told him that she would be headed over to a friend's house because her friend was fighting with her boyfriend and needed someone to talk to. She gave the number of the friend's house she would be going to a woman named D. Ellen. And if he wanted to call her on his next break, which was around 9 p.m., that he should call her at that house. So Leon said he didn't know D. Ellen, the friend that she was going to see. But when he called the number that Sandy had given him, a woman answered the phone. She identified herself but said that Sandy had not come over that night, that she had never showed up. So if he would have learned... And his alibi would later be verified by several people that were with him. So they were with him during his whole work shift, and they had seen him place both phone calls. Okay. So there's no way that he did it, though. No. But before they let him go, they wanted to talk to him about Loretta, because who would know her better, right? Leon said that Loretta could be fiery, and that there had been occasions when she had gotten in Sandy's face. She had a temper, and she was willing to confront both of them. 
but he didn't know whether or not Loretta would be angry enough to commit murder. He didn't think she was capable of it. Leon was aware that Sandy's family, especially her sister at that point, believed that Loretta had done this to her sister. And he said there was no other female he could think of that was angry at Sandy or didn't like her. Okay. I mean, that that's good to know. It's another way to rule it out. I just have a question. Um, when we were talking about the footprints found, you said that there was cowboy boots and the heels or was just... No, the cowboy boots with the heel, like that is the underslung okay. heel is a cowboy so boot. So that is the cowboy boot. Yes. But it would be a boot that would be a, a woman's, woman's boot. A woman's size seven and a half, which would equate to like a man size six. Okay. You know, the whole crime scene actually is a red flag. Because I, I think that we've already touched on a lot of it. Like that it's kind of it seems like it's been planned very well. But there's so much more to that. You know, you would have whoever has done this needs to have the means to do it, right? What I mean by that is it's not easy to, you know, not everyone has a shotgun. I mean, I know it's Texas, but still, you know, it has to be a registered weapon, most likely, right? You have the whole fact that they would need to know about this area that is outside of town. You yeah. wouldn't just go there. So does this person have some kind of connection to go out there, you know? Like knows the area. Right. Maybe they deal with cattle. Maybe they deal with horses. I mean, there has to be a reason you'd go out that far if she lives in Garland, Texas. Well, I think that it definitely means that it's someone who's a resident of the area that would know that that place is remote. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like you would need to know, oh, that's a great place to drop off. The the folding of clothes, like you've mentioned, does show that that's probably a woman that folded the clothes, but it also shows remorse, in my opinion. Okay. I think that that shows like after everything is said and done, they feel remorseful about what they did, and that's why they folded the clothes and left it that way. Okay. But I don't know now, because if it didn't take place in that car, right, it had to have happened somewhere else. Right. Right. So now we're we're on the we're on the hunt to find out now where this murder could have taken place before the drop off. But that's also hard to do because we're talking about a shotgun blast that would make a lot of noise. Yeah. And, and how do you moving get... a body is really difficult exactly. to do. So I'm thinking there has to be more than one person. So if a woman is involved in this, there needs to be a second. Okay. Has to be. All right. That's just my little I like it. That's your input. Yeah. And we'll bank it for later. Banking it for later. The detectives also knew that Lynn had picked up the children from Sandy's house earlier in the day on Friday, the day she went missing, as it had been his weekend to spend with the girls. So it seemed that whatever alibi he was going to give would most likely be verified. And like I said, they really liked Loretta for this. So in the moment, they're going to, like, bypass Lynn and go right to Loretta. Okay. When Loretta was brought in for questioning, the detectives said that she was very blunt with them. She made it clear that she had not been happy when she found out that Sandy was dating her estranged husband, wasn't her ex-husband at the time, and that she had had a lot of confrontations with Sandy, especially as Leon was kind of going back and forth between the two women. But at that moment, at the time that Leon and Sandy got engaged, Loretta was already dating somebody else, and she said she had kind of moved on from the situation. She admitted that in the past year that Sandy and Leon had been dating, 
she had gone to Sandy's house and demanded to speak with her about the relationship she was having with Leon. She also admitted to having a few choice words for her and with her, which she later admitted were threats. However, she denied the fact that she killed Sandy or that she had any involvement in the crimes surrounding Sandy Dial. So she's like, I didn't do it. I didn't plan on anyone doing it. didn't pay anyone to do it. it. I was done with the situation. Loretta was asked for her alibi, and she quickly provided one. She said she had been at a wedding rehearsal on Friday, December 13th, and then at the actual wedding the following day. She said that they had had on Friday the ceremony rehearsal and then everyone went to dinner, the entire wedding party, and that they had been out late and then the next day was the wedding. Okay. And this was somewhere that wasn't necessarily close to where they were. Well, then I would say at the end of this whole thing, ma'am, not to be creepy, but I need to know your shoe size and if you have cowboy boots. Yeah. Well, she definitely has cowboy boots. She lives in Texas. All right. Well, what's your shoe size? I need to know. Well, they do ask her. Okay, good. But all her alibi is verified. So it doesn't matter if her shoe size is close to that of the cowboy boots in the mud found outside of Sandy's car because she wasn't there. So there's just no possibility, like no. distance-wise? Her alibi was verified by all of those present, and the location was a significant distance away, so she wouldn't have been able to do it. The detectives were really shocked by this because they really were banking on it being Loretta. She was not 100% cleared because even though she may not have physically been there, she could have been involved in some part of the planning. So they put her on the back burner and go on with the investigation. And the next person on their list was Lynn Dial. Through their discussions with Sandy's family, the detectives found something else out that made Lynn look like he could be their guy. In addition to the fact that he was accused of being somewhat abusive to Sandy while they were married, I don't want to, I want to use the word abuse carefully because it's alleged and we don't know um, necessarily the context, but that is the claim that is being made by Sandy's family. Um, In addition to that fact, he stood a lot to gain from the death of his ex-wife. He would get custody of the children, of course, something he wanted. He would also no longer have to pay child support, and he would get a life insurance payout. According to Sandy's mother, Lynn was the beneficiary of her daughter's life insurance policy that she had through her job at Excel Logistics. In reading the policy, they also found out that because Sandy had been murdered, the payout that was supposed to be $30,000 in life insurance was doubled. Really? Yes. In the case of murder, he would be paid $60,000, which is the equivalent to $140,000 in today's buying power. Well, unfortunately, people have done it for less. But um, so I'm sorry, where did she work again, Um, Sandy? Excel Logistics. Okay. She was just a data input, like secretary data input. Now, was there any kind of like uh, reason to suggest maybe it would be somebody at work? Did they ever check that out? They did, but no, there's no reason for it to be anyone at work. Okay. So this is getting intense because Sandy's mother said not only was this policy in place, but Sandy 
had told her mother that she set up a meeting at work for Monday, December 16th to change the beneficiary from her husband to her children. She was murdered the Friday before she could change it to her kids. Now, I wonder what the reasoning for that was. Because the she was she had recently had to get car insurance. And when she was talking to the insurance salesman, he kind of like educated her on a lot of things and made her think about the insurance policy. And she was like, oh, that's right. Like Lynn is still my beneficiary. So I I should change it. Oh, wait, I apologize. That is right. Because that's her ex. So why would her ex be? Okay, I get it. Got it. I see. She she wanted to leave it to her children. Makes perfect sense. I forgot about that detail. In the event that she were to pass away, he would be the person who would be like temporary, temporarily holding the money for them. So like a, um, like a second party beneficiary. Okay. So all of this is verified. Sandy had renewed her car insurance in November, and the salesman convinced her. He he was like, "You're well." He was an insurance salesman. And he convinced her as a single mother, like, it'd be good for you to have a life insurance policy for your children in case something happens to you because they rely on you. So Sandy took out a policy with Farmers Insurance Group for $75,000. And it was on that day that she also made the appointment at work to change the beneficiary on Monday, December 16th. She was murdered on the 13th. So, right. The timing is weird that mm-hmm. she was murdered before she could make changes to her 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 will uh, or I'm sorry, her no, insurance. No, her life policy. insurance at work. Right. So it's kind of, that's a little bizarre. She mentioned this to her mother and told her that she, and the reason why she had this conversation with her mother is she said, listen, I made you the contingent beneficiaries. So in the case of my death, even if Lynn becomes their their guardian i mean obviously he would because he's the the parent that's alive you and dad will be the contingent beneficiaries so you'll hold the money until the girls are of age so lynn doesn't have control of it that makes sense so it made so sandy was going to do the same thing with the other life insurance policy and you know she said hold the money until the girls need it in case I die. And I don't think she thought that was only going to be weeks later. Yeah. So, of course, knowing all of this information, the Rangers want to have a conversation with Lynn Dial even more. Dial stated that on the night of December 13th, he picked up his daughters from Sandy's house as it was his designated weekend with them. He said that he went over to a family member's house And was with them or someone else at all times during the weekend. So he had a pretty solid alibi too. All of those that he claimed to be with, including his and Sandy's children, confirmed that Lynn had been there the whole time. So you have these three suspects that could potentially all be viable. Especially, you think at first Loretta. She didn't do it because her alibi is verified. And then you think Lynn, oh, my God, especially after finding out about the life insurance timing. But his alibi is verified, too. So they have to move on with the investigation, even though they're still highly suspicious of both Lynn and Loretta. 
I mean, right. If you have nothing, you have, you just don't have anything to, uh, to even bring them in for further questioning. So yeah, you have to look up into other avenues. So usually when I do research for these cases we cover, I read or hear about like the one detective that wouldn't give up or the detective that was so- assigned to the cold case that found that one detail and was like kind of a hero. But in this true crime story, the shining star of it all is Janet Holly, who is Sandy's sister, who truly refused to just let the investigation happen around her. She inserted herself. She got involved. She asked the right questions. And she really advocated for herself and her, her sister in a way that didn't really happen in the 90s. You know, like she just got really involved in it. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes the best person, uh, you know, is a family member that could do the best job keeping, you know, keeping the story alive and being able to make sure that they're like putting the pressure on police to make sure that they're looking into other leads. Right. Keeping them honest about the investigation. Yeah. And I think that that's good. The one like downside of it is she's so emotionally invested that that can skew her thought process and, you know, sometimes there's a reason why law enforcement does things a certain way. Sure. You know, I, I mean, I agree with that. But I think that sometimes you, you – I see what you're saying. You get so obsessed with it that it becomes the only thing that you can do. And she really did become obsessed with it. I mean, it did help in the investigation tremendously. I mean, wait till you find out what happens. But um, it it did help Ranger Anderson because he was the only guy who was assigned to this case – And he had so many other cases, too, that it wasn't like this is the only job that he had. So Janet helping helped him out, especially because people were sympathetic to her. If she called and said, I'm trying to I'm looking into this for the murder of my sister, people were more likely to say yes to her. Janet was not going to let whoever did this to her beloved sister get away with it. Prior to her sister's murder, 28-year-old Janet's time had been consumed by her children, a 10-year-old girl and a 2-year-old son. She was involved in their school and daycare activities. She was a member of the Junior League, and on the side, she cleaned people's homes. But all of that had been halted when her big sister was murdered. She led the crusade to take down the killer. And she did with the help of Texas Ranger Ron Anderson, who really did a great job of keeping the family abreast of all the information that he received. So he worked very well in conjunction with them. Every tip, every lead, they knew what was happening. And Ranger Anderson also took the time to listen to the Harpers, especially Janet, because he understood what loss could do to a family, and he wanted to work with them to help them also with the healing process. Knowing how badly Janet and her parents wanted to find out what had happened, Ranger Anderson let them in on a concept that was not as widely known as it is now. In 1991, before detective shows and all the true crime podcasts that we have and love today, the public really didn't know things like sometimes the killer may attend the funeral of their victim to watch in real time the effect of what they had done. So Ranger Anderson shared that fact with the horrified family. He told them that he knew it would be really hard and it was okay if they just did it sometimes, but it would be helpful if at any time during the wake, 
funeral or remembrance afterwards if they just looked around to try and see if anyone was acting strange or not like themselves or maybe was not having the same reaction as those around them. And they agreed to do that, to try it. But Janet was like determined to do so. Now she was on a mission. Like when he gave her a job, she did it. Yeah, I know. You know what the only bad part about that? Imagine now that every time you see a family member, a friend, or whoever, you you just have like your head on a swivel constantly. Like, are they acting weird? Uh, I need to look for er- any little inconsistency yeah. at all in their behavior. Like, like that is draining in itself because now you are completely guarded twenty four seven. And you're becoming a little paranoid. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. The funeral was held in Garland. 400 people showed up to mourn the death of Sandy Harper Dial. And it was a testament to the kind of woman she was. Janet had been upset that her family and the preacher, Harper's family was very religious again, Pentecostal family. They refused to mention Leon in the service, despite the fact that the two had planned to be married in in two months. And I think that that's because of the Loretta of it all. Like they really, truly, even though she had an alibi, the family was all hands on deck. They thought Loretta did it. So that's why I think they didn't want Leon to be a part of it because he had brought Loretta into their daughter's life. And just side note here, maybe they were kind of right to do this because a few months after Sandy's death, Leon goes back to Loretta. Okay, yeah, that's a little weird. Yeah. But on the other hand, um, there was nothing that initially caught Janet's eye during the funeral itself. It was when all the cars had lined up in the funeral procession while they were preparing to head to the cemetery for burial that Janet noticed something odd. Standing against the building, having what looked like a very calm and relaxing smoke break, was a woman that Janet knew to be D. Ellen Bella. The scene caught Janet as odd because she would have thought that D. Ellen would be in the funeral line, especially because the funeral line was so long. From the time that Sandy's body had been found until that point, Janet had received many phone calls from D. Ellen who explained that Sandy had been her best friend. Remember, Sandy was supposed to go to D. Ellen's house that night and didn't show up. Sandy and D. Ellen had worked together since the early 80s, and she had just been broken up about what had happened and how badly she felt for Sandy's family and her two daughters. So Janet thought it was odd that here at the funeral, A, she didn't seem too upset like she did on the phone, and she wasn't in the funeral line. You would think you'd want to be on the funeral line, especially one so long, to to go to your friend's burial. Yeah, I mean, you know, you got to take that with a grain of salt because we do know how everyone, you know, that everyone deals with grief a little differently. People act differently around death. But I mean, that is something to consider. I'm curious as to why or if police even went to go talk to her friends, because if that was somewhere where she was supposed to go... And then never showed up there. Wouldn't that be like a point of interest to kind of check that out? Well, they did. They did speak with her and ask her, you know, what was the deal? She said she had been fighting with her boyfriend. And because she was fighting with her boyfriend, she asked Ellen to come over. But she just never showed. Okay. Seeing Ellen like that, 
so nonchalantly standing up against the wall at her sister's funeral, jogged Janet's memory about something. The day that Sandy's body had been found had been one of the most devastating days of her life. It was a blur. She'd been in a fog. Everything felt surreal. So she had put the phone call out of her mind. But it was coming back to her now. Ellen had called her on December 15th, just mere hours after Sandy's body had been discovered and the family had started to call people to let them know what had happened to her. Ellen offered her condolences and said something odd. She said, I'm sorry to do this and I hate to bring it up, but, and it was so long ago, but Sandy took out a life insurance policy and made me the beneficiary. It's not a lot, just like $10,000. And Janet had been confused by this, so she asked Ellen why her sister would do something like that. Ellen told Sandy that she wanted to do that because in case she died, she wanted her daughters to have money to go to school, to go on to college. And she didn't think that her family would see to it that her daughters got a secondary education. Now, at the time, Janet recalled being hurt by that. Um, Was that how her sister felt? But then she was also confused because her father very much had encouraged Sandy to go to to college. So she didn't think it was true. And she but it was just a really hard day. So she kind of just said, I got to go and, and left. She remembered that she told DLN that she couldn't handle it. And they would talk about it later. And they never really did. But now that she was seeing DLN like that at the funeral, she was like, wait, that was a weird phone call that Hours after my sister's body is found, that she's been brutally murdered, you're calling me about a $10,000 life insurance policy. Yeah, and claiming that the family didn't have her kids' best interests in mind? Yeah. I find that a little bizarre. Weird. In the phone call, Ellen had said other things that had just not sat right with Janet. Like it was probably just some guy that picked her up and something went wrong. And I quote Ellen, She said... Sandy could be a real ass about men. So like thinking like, oh, she went off with some guy and some guy did this to her. That's what she that, said to her sister. What? Oh, that that's that's ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> so after the funeral, Janet decided to go through her sister's finances and determine like what's happening here. But she has to make that request from the bank. So it does take time. Now, Ellen Bella is an interesting character. And Janet Holly knew that Sandy was fascinated by the woman and looked up to her. Sandy had grown up in a strict and religious home. And Sandy, according to her sister Janet, had always been the good girl. So when she met Ellen, while the two were working at a paper company together, she was enamored with this woman whose life was so completely different and deviated from her own. Sandy confided to her sister that her friend Ellen, who dressed glamorously and wore a lot of makeup and jewelry, was married but had a sugar daddy on the side that gave her a lot of money and diamonds. Janet also knew that her sister's friendship with Ellen was complicated 
Because after D. Ellen divorced her husband and was allegedly still seeing the sugar daddy, D. Ellen started a relationship with Don Dial, the brother of Lynn Dial. And once Sandy and Lynn got divorced, Don told D. Ellen that he didn't want her having a friendship with Sandy because of what she did or was doing to his brother. And I say that with quotes. Okay. Hmm. So I know it's a little bit of a confusing situation. So Sandy and D. Ellen, Sandy was married to Lynn Dial. D. Ellen is dating Don Dial. Sandy and Lynn get divorced. Then Don says, stop being friends with Sandy because she's putting my brother through the ringer, saying he was abusive, saying, uh, you know, that he has to pay child support, you know. Right. The whole thing. The drama of it all. And avoiding how he probably hmm. really treated Sandy. See, now this puts things a little bit into perspective for me because I think that, like, somebody goes from being a trusted friend, right, to now being forced to, I guess, in a way, alienate her because of the the end of a relationship. So now I feel like this person went from being the friend to now someone that could be taken advantage of. Right, because now there's no. I don't know how to. I don't know how to put it the right way, but I guess be, now because there's no good, there's no goodness there. It's all just kind of like emotionless. It's easy to do harm or to take advantage of someone because they've kept her at a distance. Right, you know what I mean. There's there's, there's no love shared. Is yeah. what I'm saying at this point. Not anymore. Anymore. I think, I think that Sandy still really saw D. Ellen as a friend. There's. Um, one thing that Janet says that D. Ellen kind of called Sandy like her sister, and that was something that Sandy really appreciated. And, you know, she she liked her her friendship with D. Ellen. But now there's – this is kind of getting interesting now because are we now looking at possible motive now? The fact that she brings up the life insurance policy to Janet is very revealing, I think, because how do we know now that – the life insurance policy is even legit. Well, she's going to look into it. Yeah, that's something to consider. Well, in fact, Sandy had told her daughters that she was headed over to D. Ellen's house the night she was murdered. She told the girls to keep it a secret because she wasn't supposed to be friends with D. Ellen because Don would get upset. Their uncle Don. Okay. But according to D. Ellen, Sandy had never made it to her house. And this was all odd. So Janet and her parents asked Ranger Anderson to come over. And when he did, he arrived with the Hunt County Sheriff's detective, who also was assisting when he could with the case. There, the family told them about D. Ellen and the weird phone call, her behavior at the funeral, and the fact that she was in a relationship with Don Dial. However, the family still deviated, though, they said, even though there's all these weird things happening with D. Ellen, we really think it was Loretta and we think you should still be looking at her. And another reason why they wanted Ranger Anderson to come there is because even though for weeks Leon sat at their kitchen table sobbing about losing Sandy, he just went back to Loretta. So they're like, could the two of them have done it? So the family was saying, 
we want you to look into both Lee Loretta again and D. Ellen. The investigators did tell them that they had spoken to D. Ellen and Don because of what Sandy's daughters had told them about her plans to go there that night. And the life insurance thing was interesting, so they wanted to look into that as well. Janet overheard the detectives ask her father before they left if he had ever sent Don Dial to the scene of discovery to look for his daughter's missing purse. He said he had not. And that was an odd question, Janet thought. And it got her to thinking more about her sister's relationship with D. Ellen and kind of deviating from this Loretta thought process. So she took a look at her sister's finances again, as she had intended to. Janet knew that money for her sister Sandy was tight. According to an interview that Janet would later give to D Magazine, which D Magazine covered this story extensively. So they were a huge resource in um, doing the investigation into this murder. And Janet said that every cent of Sandy's spending was intentional. For example, there had been times where she would ask her sister to hang out and Sandy would say she couldn't because she didn't have the gas money to go. Because of this, she knew that looking through Sandy's checkbook would reveal what she wanted to find, that third-party policy that D. Ellen had spoken to her about. Sandy did not have to pay anything for the policy that she had through work. And in her checkbook, Janet found a $14.78 check written out for the recent farmer's policy that she had taken out for $75,000. So that Janet knew about. But then she found a check that had been written out for $18. That must be the policy to MetLife Insurance. And that must be the policy that D. Ellen was talking about the one where she was the beneficiary. But what Janet thought was odd was the fact that Ellen had told her that the policy was only for about 10000 So if the policy was only for $10,000, why was the monthly payment higher than that of the $75,000 payout? It's because she's lying. And you would think Ellen would have been better at choosing a good policy because she was an insurance agent. Are you kidding me right now? So because this was all suspicious to her, Janet made a phone call to the local Metropolitan Life Insurance Company's local office. She informed them that her sister had passed away and that she believed that she had a policy with them. She told them Sandy's name and that she believed that the name of the beneficiary on the policy was a woman named D. Ellen Bella. The clerk excused herself to go look for the file, and a short while later she came back to let Janet know that yes, Sandy did have a policy with them, and D. Ellen was the beneficiary. But the policy wasn't for $10,000. It was for $100,000. Are you kidding me? I'm telling you, she's she has finagled this and cooked this in some way. Especially now that we know that she's an insurance salesman. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just see you smiling right now. This is wild. Uh, what is going on here? Well, Janet was just as stunned as you are that Ellen had lied to her. Knowing that Ellen was so actively 
involved because every time Janet would call someone who knew Sandy, the person would say like, oh, yeah, I spoke to DLN the other day. So she's calling everybody. She's very involved in what's happening here. And she had openly lied to her and asked about the insurance policy that day. So Janet was like, I have to stop talking to this woman because I think she's involved in my sister's murder. Imagine that. Imagine finding this stuff out. No. And feeling like now this woman that was supposed to be your sister's friend might be involved in her murder. And you've spoken to her multiple times. It's wild. What a betrayal. If this is what's going on here. So Janet, of course, is going to be responsible with this information. And she called Ranger Anderson right away with the news that she learned about the policy. She explained to him that it didn't make sense that her sister would have taken out a $75,000 policy and left it to her parents to entrust them to do the right thing for the girls, but then didn't trust them and took out another policy for $100,000 with the Ellen. It's so fishy. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. The ranger said that he would look into the policies, but Janet said that the woman was sending her over a copy of the policy and she would show it to him when it came in. In the meantime, the ranger looked into two more possibilities. Ellen had told them that Sandy had never made it to her house on Friday, and that instead she was going to the village. They thought that maybe she meant the villa. So they said, do you mean the villa, which is a local bar and dance hall? And Ellen said, yes, yes, the villa, that's what I meant. And... This area, it's a dry area, but you are able to drink at the villa if you have a special card that allows you to be served alcohol. A special card? Yeah. I'll explain it later. It's an interesting, like, membership kind of type deal. Okay, that's cool. We we have no idea what that is because it's just alcohol everywhere here. There's a bar every, like, two seconds. I don't know if that's good or bad, but... Yeah. (laughs) yeah, It's good for me. (laughs) According to Janet and others in Sandy's life, she had a lot going on. About a year ago, and I think this is going to, we're going to get some insight into Sandy's life here. And Janet opens up to, you know, Ranger Anderson about this a little bit further because I think she's beginning to trust him. Um, She says, and I think this will explain why Loretta might have been so angry, Leon was in a relationship with Sandy, but kept going back and forth between his wife, Loretta, and his girlfriend, Sandy. During one of those times that Leon went back with his wife, Sandy chose to go out to the villa one night. The following night, she called her sister and told her that she met a man who is referred to as Stephen, but that's not his real name. Sandy said that her and Stephen had a great night. She really liked him, and they began dating. However, weeks later, Leon came back to her with roses and divorce papers to show Sandy that he had finally left Loretta and wanted to be with her. Sandy reportedly told Stephen that she was going to be with Leon. Janet told Ranger Anderson that reportedly Stephen had been okay with this because he didn't want a serious relationship. But when... Investigators looked into the background of this man. They learned that his wife had been found shot in a car. 
which is what happened to Sandy, or well, that's how her body had been found. Now, his wife's death had been ruled a suicide. So, but they want to pay him a visit just because of the coincidence. He had an alibi, and his shoe size was seven sizes larger than the one made by the man or or the person. I don't want to say man. The person who had left the boot, boot prints in the mud. So they they don't think it was Steven because it couldn't have been his footprints. He said he was really fine, but they just they want to look into every possibility of who this could have been. Like they were thinking was Steven not as okay with it as he put on. Right. I mean, they just want to go through everything with a fine tooth comb at this point. I mean, because you're grasping at at straws, trying to find out if they're happened. Right. Any kind of piece of info you could, you know, find to maybe get further, you know. Right. And another person they spoke to was a man named Jake, with whom Sandy had had an affair with before she left Lynn. According to her family, Lynn was never really a good fit for Sandy. Sandy had told her sister Janet that the day she married Lynn, she knew it had been a mistake. When after her pregnancy, Sandy began to gain weight, Lynn had been very unkind to her. He called her a fat slob and made her feel worthless. One day, Sandy struck up a conversation with a man named Jake, who was a lot younger than she was. Jake was staying with his grandparents next door. He showed Sandy attention and made her feel beautiful for the first time in a very long time. And the two began an affair. Jake was encouraging to Sandy, and with his support, she lost over 150 pounds and divorced Lynn. Wow, okay. But Sandy knew that there was no future with Jake. He was so much younger than she was. He'd also gotten into trouble with the law and had recently done so again just before she ended things with him. She wanted to provide a good life for herself and her daughters. And if she was going to start over again, she wanted to do it right. And they wanted to know if that had been something that bothered Jake. So they questioned him too. Again, his alibi checks out and his shoes, shoe size was a lot bigger, five sizes bigger than the size that was left in the like the mud so they're like it can't be him either it's like everybody that we're investigating it's just it's it's falling short yeah i mean it's very unlikely that it's a man yeah i mean everything on that scene points to a woman for sure so janet upon hearing that those two men were cleared and doing everything in her power to search for her sister's killer was exhausted and becoming depressed ranger anderson who had grown to admire the drive and conviction that Janet had gave her a task to focus on that would help her feel as if she was making some progress in the case. He told her to call Crime Stoppers and see if she could work with them to get a reward or raise money for a reward and have a tip line set up. She did. And Janet was able to raise $4,000 on top of the $1,000 that Crime Stoppers was willing to offer. And with their assistance, she hung up flyers that advertised the reward money that would be given to anyone who had information that would lead to an indictment of Sandy's murderer and base, the basic information, Sandy's car, um, 
what she looked like. And while driving around and placing up flyers, Janet and her friend drove on to County Road 2646, the road on which her sister's car and body had been found. I'm sure that Janet felt that if she was going to help with this crime, it was something she had to do. Upon reflection, she told D Magazine that she and her friend were scared to death. But as they drove along that road, she realized that this wasn't just some place that the murderer had chosen at random, especially not in the dark. You had to know where you were going. And it was kind of solidified for her here that this person was a local, most definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what I was saying earlier. You would have to have knowledge that a place like that where you could drop off that car there of all places you'd have to know the area right janet got out of the vehicle where her sister had been found in the light of day far off on the other side of the pasture she saw something rather interesting oh boy it was the top of a house she knew it well it was don dial's house what the house that he had bought with his ex-wife when he was still working for the Royce City Police Department, he had worked in law enforcement. Wait. Hold on. Repeat that? Don Dial's house is on the other side of the pasture. And okay. Ellen's boyfriend and her ex-brother-in-law. And he was an ex-cop. Yes. So interesting. Um, he'd worked for the county and he'd worked for Royce City Police Department. His career ended in law enforcement when he pulled, I don't want to say pulled over, he stopped an intoxicated pedestrian. While he was dealing with that person, he was called to another scene because a fight broke out. So we asked the man if he needed assistance. The man said he didn't. Don Dial left the scene, and after he left the scene, that man walked into traffic and was killed. Um, because of that, it, he left law enforcement. He was fired. Okay. So, for the first time since she heard her sister was murdered, Janet was thinking that maybe it had not been Loretta that had killed Sandy after all. Because this is the thing. The Harpers knew the Dials. They'd grown up together. So Janet had a pretty good understanding of who Don Dial was. And she described him as being someone who was very cocky. Um, he loved things. He loved his boat, his jet skis, his big truck. It seemed to Janet that her sister had been killed for money. She didn't know how, but she knew it involved money. And based on D'Ellen having been the beneficiary of this bizarre policy and her being the girlfriend of Don Dial, was this what was this something that happened? Okay. How would they know about the road? Listen, you're telling me right now, okay, that you've explained the murder scene. Well, I should well where we found the body. You're explaining where it is. You've explained that now this guy has a house over there. The thing with the life insurance policy, all these things are starting to come together. If we're dealing with Don being responsible in any way, now we have two people. Yeah. Because you have the motive with money, you have the means to stage a body. You have the means of committing the murder somewhere else that's not the car. And you have someone that knows the area. 
Mm-hmm. And when a background in law enforcement, this gets a little bit crazier. Yeah. It gets more crazy. Oh, my God. Okay. Then, to kind of seal the deal and Janet's thinking that Don and D. Ellen had been involved, Janet learned from a friend that had put up the flyers for the reward money in D. Ellen's neighborhood of Rolette or Rolette. I don't know how they pronounce it in Texas. And I don't want to mispronounce towns, but that's the neighborhood that D. Ellen lived in. And the friend put the flyers up there and then called Janet the next day and said, someone took down all the flyers. Get out of here. No. So then, you know, Janet's obsessive about this. She's obsessive about the autopsy report, too. She learned that her sister had the equivalent of a few drinks in her system. And this is an interesting thing. Like anywhere else, it'd be like, oh, you know, whatever. Someone had a few drinks. It's a dry area. So it has to be a big deal. So she had to have used her card if she had gotten alcohol somewhere else. And D. Ellen had said, oh, she never came to my house. So it's not like she had a glass of wine at someone's house. She had to have used her card because D. Ellen said to investigators that Sandy called and said, I'm going to the villa. Want to come? Okay. But Sandy's card was never used at the villa that night. Unless someone used their card potentially potentially and um janet knew that garland and mesquite the two places her sister would have gone to drink were dry areas so that's how she found out when she went to the villa and said hey did my sister use her card on december 13th they go no but someone used her card on december 18th five days after she was murdered yeah what is happening so someone used her unicard and that's why they couldn't find the purse or the wallet because someone took it and used the card. Yes. What is going on so here? So then she calls Ranger Anderson. She's like, "This, the killer or whoever has her purse used this card. Let's find out who did it. But this is the day before cameras. So there was no cameras. Oh, you got to be kidding me. The bartender didn't remember who it was. <sighs> Isn't that wild? It's not like it's like an it's not like it's an electric card or anything, it, right? It, no, it's just like a showing. Well, in ninety one, it was just yeah. a showing. I'm thing. sure now, like it would have been like a yeah. card where you could like scan in and it has a receipt of yeah. use, you know, mm-hmm. and it shows what was purchased or who it was. Like, not obviously, that's probably how it is now, maybe, right. but not back then. Wow, that actually is wild. But why? Why would somebody do that unless they're trying to like well, throw eerie. somebody off? It's eerie and ballsy. It is. It's kind of cocky, kind of like Mr. Don. Well, (laughs) Janet is frustrated that she felt like that was a huge lead and it led nowhere. And I guess like, welcome to the world of law enforcement, because we hear about that all the time. Right. You know, you think these leads come up and they're going to be so helpful and then they turn out to be nothing. So she she says to Ranger Anderson, And this is 10 months since the passing of her sister. Take me to the scene of discovery and walk me through what was found there. And he agrees to do that with her. So Ranger Anderson drives Janet there and they're there on this desolate dirt road and he lays it out. Everything he knew. The definitive timeline. At 6 p.m., 
Lynn Dial came to pick up the girls. At the same time, Leon called Sandy on her break. Sandy told both her children and Leon that she was going to DLN's house later and that if he wanted to call her at 9 p.m., he'd have to call her there. And she gave him the number. So if he doesn't know the number, A, and he doesn't know who DLN is, that does kind of verify that the two of them fell out of their friendship for a while at the bequest of Don Dial. At 6.30, Sandy called a friend, a woman named Kathy, and asked her if she wanted to go shopping with her. Kathy declined but said if she really couldn't find someone to go with her, she'd go. But at around 6.40, like 10 minutes later, she called Kathy back and said, I found someone to go shopping with me. Don't worry about it. And when Kathy went to her apartment door, she lived in the same complex as Sandy, and she went to go call her daughters in for dinner, she saw Sandy hurrying to her car. So Sandy had supposedly, seemingly, and this is why they didn't think D. Ellen was the person at first, they thought whoever Sandy had found to go shopping with had done this. I see. At 9 p.m., when Leon called D. Ellen's house, he spoke with a woman who said that Sandy wasn't there, that she never showed up. Between 9 and 9.30, a witness that lived on Forehand Lane, which you'd have to go down to get to the old county road, 2646, that Sandy had been found on, he said when he went to the window to turn on the Christmas lights that he had around his pond, adorable, um, that he saw two cars driving towards his house. And because he lives on kind of a remote road, like he always takes notice of cars passing by. Right, because it doesn't happen too often, I'm sure. Right. He said one car had its headlights off and a really loud muffler. While Sandy's brother had rigged her muffler on her car because it was broken and she couldn't afford to have it fixed properly. So the car with its lights off was Sandy's car. But there was a truck that had its lights on. Doesn't Don have a truck? Well, him and the rest of the population of Texas. But it is odd, though, that you would have two cars like that and one with its lights off. Like it's trying not to be seen. seen. Yeah. (laughs) Between 930 and 10, a farmer saw two cars, one making the same sound, but this time its lights were on. And that farmer saw those two cars turn down the county road. He thought it was kids going to make out or there's also like you could use that county road to get to a dump. And if you wanted to illegally access the dump, you'd have to go down that road. So he those are the two reasons people go down there. So we thought it was one or the other. And the next morning, the car was found by the rancher. Anderson said he believed Sandy's purse was taken to throw them off because it wasn't a robbery. Sandy still had on her gold necklace and in the trunk were Leon's commemorative guns and silver pieces worth a lot of money because he was in the process of moving into her apartment. He believed the person undressed Sandy, positioned her to make it look like a sexual assault took place because there were blood smears on her stomach. So they were moving and positioning her body. 
the boot prints also indicated that this person then walked from like the boot prints showed that the person that had positioned Sandy's body was standing at the open door to the back of her car. So they basically opened the door. They were they were positioning Sandy's body. Then they walked from the back of Sandy's car to the passenger side of another vehicle. And based on the tire tracks, this vehicle had four-wheel drive or front-wheel drive because they had spun out in the mud as they were leaving the scene in a hurry. I it's, know. it's crazy because, you, you know, <laughs> there. I feel like if this would have happened at any other time, maybe fast forward a few years, you'd have such in-depth analysis of like the DNA, fingerprints, and all, you know, everything well, that no goes into it. Well, no fingerprints could be found on the car. Well, actually, you know what? You're right. Because, I, I, listen, I'm convinced at this moment that that Don has involvement. And he would have thought that I don't want fingerprints to be anywhere. I'll wear gloves. Well, that is what Janet was thinking, too. And she asked Anderson a question that she had overheard him ask her father about sending Don to look for the purse. She was like, what was that about? And he said, well, when they were processing the crime scene still on Monday, they had removed Sandy's body. But on Monday, the day after Discovery, he told them that Herbert Harper, Sandy's father, sent him to look for the purse because there was a dump nearby. So they were searching the dump, too, for Sandy's purse. Like maybe the killer dumped it in the dump because it'd be really hard to find. And Herbert Harper said, I never sent Don Dial down there. So that meant he was staking out what the police were finding. Right. It's almost like when we talk about uh, uh, um, revisiting the revisiting crime scene. Revisiting the crime scene. Yes. Yep. Yes. It was just this like major connection that made Sandy's family really feel like it wasn't Loretta and it had to do with D. Ellen and Don. Ranger Anderson had also received a major break in the case. That would finally bring resolution to Sandy's family just days after he goes back to the crime scene with Janet. Are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. MetLife Insurance called Ranger Anderson and told him that the $100,000 policy that was left to D. Ellen, well, they didn't want to pay it out. And they were noted buying law enforcement because they believed the policy had been fraudulently obtained and they were filing a lawsuit against DL and Bella. I knew it. I had a feeling that that's exactly what was going on with that. And the the suit it was it wasn't just against um DL and it was also against Lynn Dial because the policy, the the second beneficiaries were her two daughters, and he's the legal guardian of the two daughters. So, like, they're saying this whole policy is fishy, so we have to sue everybody involved because really? we don't want the policy to go out. Yeah. We'll get into it. So, MetLife was contending that the signatures on the documents may have been forged and that Sandy Dial may have had nothing to do with obtaining that policy. 
Because why would she take out the $75,000 policy knowing she had one for 100000 already? Right. And she not only... didn't know about the $100,000 yeah. policy. No, you're, that's 100% right. And also think about it. If this is someone that like didn't have a, uh, an enormous amount, uh, amount of money, why would you pay $17 and change and then another $18 on a policy... For no reason. For no reason. And, and and the reasoning from the friend doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. We have not seen so far a reason to think that the family and her didn't get along or felt or had opposite viewpoints on anything. Right. She was so close to her mother. They talked every day. Right. So that doesn't make any sense, which made it suspicious from the start. Mm-hmm. And also to lie about the amount. Um, 10000 is a lot different than 100000 Ah, uh, yeah. That's an important zero. <laughs> yeah. Janet and her father went to go meet with an attorney who was representing MetLife, along with the detectives investigating Sandy's murder. Janet had called the meeting because she said that some there were some things that she wanted to work through with the attorney to see if the story that D. Ellen had given her matched up. D. Ellen originally said that the policy had been taken out a long time ago. That had been a lie. The policy had been taken out on July 26, 1991, less than five months before Sandy's death. So are we talking about maybe this being planned out a bit? Hmm. The attorney shared with them the application that they had on file. Sandy's address was listed as D. Ellen's address. The home phone number also belonged to D. Ellen. What? And the work number listed was Don Dial's number. However, it was off by one digit. On the policy, there was also a special note left. It stated that the purchaser only wanted this application and case to be handled by phone or mail. So no MetLife insurance agent ever met Sandy Dial. And you know what? Only someone who sells insurance would make it that way. Mm. The application was interesting. It seemed that at first it was applied for with the beneficiary being D. Ellen, but it was denied because D. Ellen had no insurable interest, meaning that there was no reason for Sandy to give her or leave her this money. She's not family or a business partner, so it's hard to leave life insurance to somebody who doesn't have this what they call insurable interest. So it was advised that the policy be taken out, left to Sandy's children, and then later she could file to change the beneficiary. And that's what happened. So the policy was, there was an application for the policy and that it was to be left to Sandy's children. And then days later, paperwork was submitted to change the beneficiary to D. Ellen. I've never said the word beneficiary so many times. I know. I feel like I'm going to start saying it wrong. <laughs> Another interesting thing about the application was Sandy's birthplace was listed as Texas, but that wasn't true. The Harpers were originally from Wichita, Kansas. So the whole thing is fraudulent. Yeah. The and whole thing. The signature on the paper, it wasn't Sandy's. And luckily, Janet had saved all of her sister's stuff. And she had cards that she had received from D.L. and Bella. And the writing matched the application. Like it was just totally obvious, mm-hmm. right? Because <laughs> she wrote very like um, like loopy and like 
script, her script was very distinct. Gotcha. Ranger Anderson got a court order for all of the original documents that MetLife had regarding the policy. It turned out that Sandy's fingerprints were nowhere on the application, the change of beneficiary form, or the $18 check for the first monthly payment, or the consent form for the physical examination. But DeEllen's were. Her prints were on every document. And because her address was listed as the address of Sandy Dial, the paramedic that performed the physical exam for the life insurance policy examined D. Ellen. Oh, my God. So she did the uh, she got the examination done. Yes. And tried to pass it off as as Sandy's. Yep. Yep. This was all the proof they needed. Don Dial didn't have an alibi for that night. He had said he was home alone. DeEllen had said she was with her children. But when the ranger spoke to her teenage children, they said, if it was Friday night, we were definitely not home. They were like, screw you, mom. (laughs) Screw you, mom. You're on your own. So let's talk a little bit more about Don and DeEllen. Don's first wife's parents and sister had been killed in a car accident. According to D Magazine, Don worked for law enforcement, but his career ended early, and the couple lived off of that policy for most of their marriage. He married again briefly, but that marriage was cut short because he met and began having a relationship with DeEllen. DeEllen had two children with her first husband, to whom she was married to for 16 years. She then married a man named James Fuller who owned a drywall business. It was true that she did have an affair with a wealthy Dallas businessman who would never give his name, but denied giving her any money, but said um, she definitely liked to live a very expensive lifestyle. He did tell law enforcement that he broke things off with her when he believed that she was trying to have his wife find out that they were having an affair. Shortly thereafter, she began her affair with Don Dial. When Fuller found out about this affair, he filed for divorce. And because he had adopted DeEllen's two children, he received custody of them. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, But before their divorce, Fuller and DeEllen had filed for bankruptcy. She was a woman who liked very nice things, but didn't have the money to afford it. But in addition to there being a federal lien against Fuller and D. Ellen for $10,504, she was also behind in mortgage payments, a year's worth of mortgage payments. So she needed money, big time. It was also discovered that D. Ellen Bella and Don Dial were no strangers to insurance fraud. In October of 1990, DeEllen filed a claim with her homeowner's insurance company that stated a man had fallen off her roof and was injured. The claim was for the company to pay for the losses and medical bills of the man, both of which totaled $315,000. The man's name was Don Dial. And what the company did not know was that the couple was actually living together. In the end, they received $29,000. These two are just trying to scam as much as possible. Yeah. And it's actually really sad now now that we know what we know. 
oh, John, this story is not even close to over. Oh, God. So these were all huge leads. But unfortunately, Anderson had been the only person assigned to the case. And he had other work as well. So this wasn't that easy for him. He was going to canvas the neighborhood in which DeAllen had lived to see if the neighbors knew anything. But growing impatient, Janet decided to do it with a journalist from D Magazine, the one who wrote an extensive story on Janet and the case in 1993. And that journalist's name was Glenna Whitley. And that journalist's name was Glenna Whitley. She and Whitley split the neighborhood, but Janet would get the first piece of information, and it was big. She had the flyers about her sister that had the information surrounding her death, the reward from Crime Stoppers, and the car. And she was going door-to-door with it. D'Ellen had since moved from the neighborhood. Um, Well, she was kind of forced to because that's what happens when you don't make mortgage payments for a year. But when Janet went to one woman's door who lived extremely close to her former home, the woman looked confused. That's not Sandy Dial, she said. Janet insisted that it was. She would know what her sister looked like. But the neighbor insisted that it wasn't. Sandy Dial has short blonde hair. And and then the woman went on to describe D.L. and Bella. Don't tell me she was playing, she was pretending to be Sandy the whole time. To the neighbors, in case the insurance people ever came around asking questions. Oh my God. Well, the woman didn't stop there. She's just letting it all out. And this is crazy because if only they canvassed the area, but the Texas Ranger was like, I didn't have the time. I mean, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? But he could have found this this woman. She said, I know that car, Sandy's car that was on the flyer. She had seen it parked outside of DeAllen's house on the day Sandy went missing. So I know it sounds odd. How would this woman remember this like years later? Well, That's because she remembered, A, it was Friday the 13th, and she and her husband were leaving to go to Las Vegas the following day. She knew she left on the 14th of December, so she had seen this on the 13th. Because they were going away, she went to go get the mail to make sure, you know, it didn't look like people had mail piled up, which is a clear indication that people aren't home So she went down to her mailbox. When she did, she saw two people behind the Pontiac, which is Sandy's black Pontiac, parked in front of D'Ellen's house, well, she thought Sandy Dial's house, and these two individuals were rifling through the trunk. She said she couldn't remember who they were and she couldn't really see them because it was dark, but it struck her as odd. So when she went back inside, she peeked out her window again, and she saw someone carrying a rolled-up comforter, but carrying it like a big baby. This person just witnessed them carrying out a body. Uh, Yeah, and she said that it didn't even cross her mind that it was a person. She just remembered thinking, oh, they're going to have a hard time getting that in the trunk because of all the stuff in the trunk. But they put it in the back seat. You know why? Because your mind isn't going to the most radical thing well, possible. Well, mine would. Well, yes, yours would. 
But, but I'm saying... The, but this woman, ready for Las Vegas, not thinking that. Well, I mean, typical people, you know, most people wouldn't. I mean... And 1991 wasn't immersed in the true crime world, I feel like, as we are now. I think we're a little bit more seasoned, and I think we know what yeah. to look out for. But yeah, you're right. I mean... We're like season 12 Benson, you know? <laughs> we got some uh, time some, under our yeah, belt. Some yeah, some seasoning. <laughs> but no, I mean, seriously, though, I mean, this person was probably just like, wow, that's that's odd, not thinking... That's a body in there. That's a body. Yeah. But but she thought, oh, they're carrying it like a big baby. Like a human, girl. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez Louise. <laughs> but she didn't. But then it's like, okay, you thought that person's name was Sandy Dial. Did you not hear on the news that Sandy Dial was found? No, because they were in Las Vegas. Right. But it had to have still been in the news. Maybe she doesn't read the newspaper. I mean, think about it. We don't watch the news, right? And it's 2023. Yeah. We don't watch the news. Not really. Well, also, yeah, not unlike not unlike depressing. your local channels. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, we. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Weird. So Janet was beside herself. Imagine her sister hearing all this information. She found a witness that saw her sister's killers moving her body. Yes. She went straight to Ranger Anderson to tell him the news. So Anderson gets a search warrant for D.L. and Bella's former home. The problem was the new owners had completely renovated and painted the house. Oh, man. So no evidence could be found there. There were no fibers or hairs found in the car that connected Don or D.L. to the scene. But there was one thing. D.L.'s seven and a half shoe would fit perfectly in the boot print. She was the same size as the boot print. Janet had worked so hard to collect this evidence and help the detective, really at the detriment of her own life. She was upset that her sister's case only got one ranger. Like she would say, like she would hear about other murders and see that like five detectives were working one case. And she just didn't understand why her sister's case wasn't receiving the care she felt like it deserved and needed like everyone's murder investigation does well soon after no physical evidence could be found janet and her family received a letter from the district attorney it stated that they didn't have enough evidence to move forward what yeah i i mean don't you find that a little odd though I do. I mean, because, I mean, if, okay. But there's I'm gonna... no physical evidence. So they would have to convict both people on purely circumstantial evidence. Insurance fraud isn't murder. No, it's not. But it's motive to commit murder and plan one. Uh, listen, I am not. My brain is not big enough to understand how the law sees certain things and what is justifiable and what's not or whatever the case is. But this is what I'm going to say. We caught her in the act pretending to be the -hmm. person that died or that was murdered. And we have her committing fraud on that dead woman's behalf. To me, that is enough to to at least get them uh, to grill them in a in a. In a police station, more about what's going on here. You ha- literally have another person that is involved. That's an ex that that is ex law enforcement that explains everything at that scene, and has a house on the property not that far away. You cannot tell me that there is not enough here. 
Well, your sentiment was felt by the family as well. That's what the Harpers thought too. How is there not enough evidence? And for four years, that's where the case stood. Now, that didn't mean that Janet gave up looking for evidence. It just became more difficult because she had no resources from law enforcement because because they sent that letter, the investigation ended. So when someone decided to run against the current district attorney who had sent that letter, Janet brought her sister's files to him and said, I will help with your campaign. And honestly, she had kind of really impressed the community with her efforts and her passion. That article in D Magazine came out. So like she was like, a, I would say like a small town celebrity regarding her efforts that she took. And she was saying, I'll support your campaign. Tell me what you'll do for my sister's case. Now, to his credit, this man tells Janet, I would never use your sister's case to get elected, but I can help you. You can, as a private citizen, take this case yourself to the grand jury and ask for a special prosecutor to be brought in for assistance. You have that right as a citizen. Really? Yes. I didn't even know that. Um, It might be different. It might just be the state of Texas. They do have very um, um, intense individual rights within their state constitution. Uh, I think that goes back historically as Texas being its own country. And Texans really pride themselves in their individual states' rights. So Um, I don't know if that's the case for every state, but in Texas, yes. So with the help of Ranger Anderson, who is still, you know, passionate about helping solve this case, he and Janet display all of the evidence to the grand jury in the winter of 1996, five years after Sandy's murder. The case they presented was that Don, Lynn, they're involving Lynn Dial, because don't forget, he got an insurance payout, too. His insurance payout got doubled, and it was three days before she changed the policy. I see. Wow. Okay. So they presented a case that Don, Lynn, and D. Ellen were responsible for Sandy's death. And the grand jury agreed. Thank God. Yeah. And and I have to tell you, I, I do think that it is a little crazy. I mean, I'm so glad for this family that Janet has taken such initiative to bring this forward to the grand jury. But why was it necessary? Well, you know, like know. that's the thing that's getting that getting to me already. And the case isn't even over yet. But, I, you know, like I said, I give her so much credit. But why? Why did that even have to it go down this way? It shouldn't have had to have been that difficult. Yeah. 100%. Just for a family to get closure, this should have been done through the proper outlets, the proper people in charge. It should have been able to be done. Well, but regardless, I'm still glad that it's being looked at that now. Well, the theory that was presented to the grand jury was that Lynn had taken the kids and Yellen had invited Sandy over the perfect storm using a fight with Don as a ruse. As Sandy was sitting down talking with Ellen in the kitchen after a few drinks, Don came behind her with his shotgun and fired into the back of her head. She was killed at Ellen's house. The trajectory of the bullet 
would be explained by that. She died instantly. The couple wrapped her in a comforter. They were seen bringing her out to her own car. The witness testified to this. From there, they drove to the dirt road that Don knew about because he had lived in the area and knew how remote it was. He no longer lived in that house, but he had. Okay. He followed D. Ellen as she drove the victim's car to the site, and he followed in his truck. Once at the site, D. Ellen removed the comforter, removed Sandy's clothes, folded them, placed them in the front seat. She posed the body to make it look like a sexual assault happened. She removed the victim's tampon and left it on the floorboards and then walked to Don's truck and it peeled away. They left her there like that. And the motive was money. The final piece that was put together was when Janet had found out through other friends that Ellen had told Sandy that she had to pay bills that Don didn't know about. So because the unanswered question was, how did Sandy not know about this policy if a check was written from her bank account? Well, Janet found out. Sandy wanted to help D. Ellen, and D. Ellen wanted to keep bills from Don. And I say that in quotes because I don't think that was the case. So what happened was Sandy gave a whole bunch of checks to D. Ellen. And D. Ellen would give cash to Sandy. She'd deposit in her checking account. And then D. D. Ellen would pay bills using Sandy's checks. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. No, I do. So D. Ellen had a bunch of Sandy's checks. And that's how she was able to just write out An one. An $18 check. Right. Yeah. For the uh, life insurance. Mm-hmm. And of course, don't forget, they have, they did feel like they had physical evidence because the fingerprints on the bogus life insurance application all belong to D. Allen. Every single one, every single piece of paper, including the refilings to change the beneficiaries. So on April 26, 1996, after all of that was presented, Lynn, Don, and D. Allen were indicted. After this, D. Allen invited a reporter into her home to get her side of the story out. She was ridiculous. Like, Janet's just a jealous sister. She said Sandy was promiscuous. It was just disgusting. Disgusting. Um, And she said that even though Lynn and Don didn't like Sandy, they never would have killed her. And she claimed that Sandy knew all about the life insurance policy. In the end, Lynn Dial's case was dismissed because it was completely circumstantial and it couldn't be proven that he knew that Sandy was changing the beneficiary policy at work that following Monday. Like her mother knew because she told the mother, but the mother never told Lynn. Right. And how I, I was actually thinking that too, like how messed up would it be like to be uh, brought in, uh, to be involved to in that scheme right. just because of the like coincidence of this all. right and imagine that not knowing anything and you're like what are you talking about like yeah you know well um so lynn's case was dismissed he was given custody of the girls and the insurance policy was paid out to him in april of 1997 don dial was found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder and was sentenced to 80 years in prison good 
Ellen faced a trial in February of 1998. She was found guilty of the same crime and was sentenced to 50 years in prison. When Don Dial was up for parole in 2012, for the first time, an article appeared in the Dallas Morning News that gave the public some very sad insight to how the aftershocks of murder can splinter a family in mourning. It was revealed that Sandy's daughters, of whom Lynn Dial, their father, had custody, had lost contact with their mother's side of the family after the indictment of Don and Lynn Dial. Sandy's daughters claimed in the 2012 article that their aunt was insistent that their father and uncle had something to do with their mother's murder, but they did not believe that they'd been involved. Wow. Over the years, especially after the sentencing of Don Dial to 80 years for Sandy's murder, the two girls, now women, lost complete contact with their grandparents and aunt on their mother's side. They, the women, Miranda and Brianna, they advocated for the release of their uncle, who they do not believe is involved in the murder of their mother. And they thought that their aunt Janet it was a little fanatical about and obsessive about thinking that it was Lynn and Don who were involved. That's really sad. It's sad. Like the way that the that it was explained was that uh, the two girls said that they would want like as they became teenagers, they would ask the Harpers, meaning like their mother's side of the family, like, can we change the weekend? We have something to do. And that the Harpers were like, no, we have you this weekend. And that made them upset a little bit. So they kind of grew resentful. They also were resentful over the fact that um, they thought that their uncle had nothing to do with it, but their mother's side of the family did. And I'm sure they were hearing it from both sides and they became the pawns in the middle, which is tremendously sad. And so in 2012, they advocated for their uncle's release they haven't done so since, uh, or I couldn't find anything that they had. But Janet Holly in 2012 still believed that Don Dial was completely involved in the murder of her sister. And she wrote a letter to the parole board explaining why she believed Don Dial was still a danger to society. Well, Don Dial was denied parole in 2012, and in 2017, and again in 2022. Dial's next parole hearing will be for November of 2027. Now let's get into D.L. and Bella, because her story is not over. Now, I don't think you're ready for this. And quite honestly, this could be an entire another episode. Okay. I am now going to present to you the case of Harold Henry. Now, the cases of both Sandy Dial and Harold Henry have been painstakingly reported by Glenna Whitley for D Magazine. Remember, she's the one who helped Janet canvas the neighborhood that found that witness. Sandy's story in 1993, and then Whitley wrote Harold's story in 2019. The reason she had more research to do was because it seemed D.L. and Bella had been close to another person who had seemingly been murdered. Since her sentencing, Ellen has stuck with the story that she had nothing to do with the murder of her friend. While in prison, she must have gotten lonely at some point 
because she put out an ad in search of a pen pal in 1998 on a website called Paper Dolls. The person who answered her request was a wealthy retired rancher in South Dakota. As the two began exchanging letters, Harold Henry, as many before him had, had become enamored with D. Ellen's charm. She was kind to him, flattered him, showed him humor in their correspondence, and he fell for her. The two began a relationship, albeit a complicated one. It was a relationship nonetheless. And don't forget, according to D. Ellen, she was completely innocent. Harold had been very frugal his whole life and had a lot of money considering he never spent it and was a single man. He did have a family. He had been married, and in that marriage they had two children, Dallas, a son, and Deb, daughter. But he and his wife had an epic divorce. His daughter Deb referred to it as the War of the Roses. When Harold Henry met D. Ellen, who was 47 at the time, he was in his early 60s. He showed a picture of his new girlfriend to his daughter-in-law once and told her, D, as he called her, could do anything. She could knit, crochet. She was learning Braille because she loved to help people and because she would make a career of it once she left prison. And she could almost be a lawyer because she had such an extensive knowledge of the law, especially insurance law. I wonder why. In 2000, shortly after meeting D. Ellen for the first time, he hired a new attorney that took on her case. After three years, two appeals, and a lot of legal bills, all the legal remedies for D. Ellen's case had been exhausted. She didn't win either appeal. She'd have to wait for parole, if she ever got it. Knowing that she would be in prison for a long time and wanting to see her more, Harold made the choice to move to Gatesville, Texas, from South Dakota, so he could be closer to D. Ellen. He put $200 a month in her commissary, deposited money into a savings account for her, and according to the article, most likely paid for the publication of her book, Tea Please, in which she wrote poetry, made drawings, and put recipes. While in Gatesville he connected with another man by the name of Charles. Now, Charles was in the same boat as Harold, but he had married his prison girlfriend. Charles's wife was a woman who was serving time for shooting her fifth husband several times with a single-shot shotgun. Okay, all right. Well, Harold made just as bold of a choice as Charles did because he eventually ended up changing his will and making D. Ellen the sole heir to his estate. An odd choice, like considering the fact that he had two children. What is wrong with, what was wrong with these people? Oh, man. Oh, okay. okay. All right. In 2008, paperwork was signed for an annuity in Harold's name that upon maturing and in the case of his death would go to D. Ellen. It was worth $164,000. D'Ellen claimed this was Harold's idea. When she became eligible for parole in 2009, 
Harold hired another lawyer. But thanks to efforts from Janet Hawley, DeEllen's parole was postponed another five years. Janet and Ranger Anderson made a personal presentation to the board discussing um, why the case should be set off another five years because the murder had been committed with a deadly weapon. And that is an indication to set off parole in Texas. So they worked really hard to keep DeEllen in prison. Meanwhile, things were really falling apart for Harold. His daughter, Deb, worried for him. Her father had called her brother and told him that someone was threatening to kill him and his family unless he sent them $50,000. His children called the local FBI regarding this extortion attempt, and they told the children that it was a scam and that his father should not pay the money. But their terrified elderly father had already done it. Oh, my God. The next thing that happened was their grandmother passed away, Harold's mother. He kept making excuses as to why he couldn't go up to South Dakota to see her when he knew that she was on her deathbed. And then once she passed away, he was also making excuses as to why he couldn't make it to um, her funeral. And at one point he asked his son, Dallas, if he could keep her on ice because um, he needed a few months to get up there. Harold's son said that he couldn't do that. And that's when Harold broke down in tears, saying that he couldn't leave his house because his life was being threatened. He thought there was a sniper on a nearby roof because he was being extorted for money. His children knew that this had to do with their father's girlfriend. So they called the prison, who told them to call the police with their suspected beliefs that D. Ellen was behind all of this. And the local police told them to call the prison. They wanted their father home. They knew he wasn't in a good situation. They asked him to sign over power of attorney, something that he did. But it took time for the paperwork. So the children figured in the meantime, you know, like, we'll pay to get him up to South Dakota But when they checked his bank account, they realized he had no money. He couldn't even afford to return to South Dakota. Out of options, Harold's daughter called Adult Protective Services for help. Well, at least they're being proactive as much as possible. Yeah, they're trying. But this is so sad. It, John, you have no idea. And she was right to call Adult Protective Services because it seemed that D. Ellen was done with Harold. And now that his money was running out, she was searching for the next person. She had posted on writeaprisoner.com saying that she was in search of fun, relaxing, entertaining conversations. I'm seeking friendship with the option of a serious relationship if the opportunity presents itself. I enjoy palm reading, the arts, good food, good wine, good company, family, and friends. I'm romantic, passionate, affectionate, and easy to talk to. While incarcerated, I've accomplished many skills, and this will allow me to have a successful career, be my own boss, and lead a very happy, independent life. At 50, I'm a beautiful woman looking forward to discovering the zest of life again. I'd love to have a good friend to share dreams, hopes, laughs, tears, and goals. 
friendship is not bound by age or gender. So she's looking for another yeah. sugar daddy mm-hmm. or sugar mama, it seems. Well, my response to that is you are not Martha Stewart. You are a, you are a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. You prey on the weak and the innocent to get ahead financially, rob and steal and scam and kill. You are pathetic. I agree. But this isn't over. So Adult Protective Services investigates reports of abuse, neglect, and exploitation. And boy, did they find it here. A representative social worker contacted Harold's daughter, Deb, and told her the following. Once Deb had started asking questions, it seemed Ellen had completely backed away from Harold and took him off the visitors list. Harold was desperate to get back on it and make things right. Ellen told him the only thing that would make things right was that if he took out a life insurance policy and named her as the beneficiary. When the social worker checked in with him, he had already gone through the first steps of getting the physical. Deb went to the police and said she was worried that this woman was seemingly doing to her father the same thing she was in prison for. They had internal affairs at the prison look into things, and Ellen told them that whatever Harold was doing, he was doing voluntarily, and she had years of letters to prove it, and his will, and his annuity. And it was also discovered that Harold had agreed to pay $25,000, half of the amount that it would cost for Ellen's case to be taken to a new attorney. Harold wrote checks to Ellen's niece so that she could pay for the lawyer. Whether she did or not, we don't know. Her appeals had been exhausted, and Ellen kept telling Harold that once the DNA was tested, that she would be exonerated. The only problem was there was no DNA. And while Adult Protective Services was doing this investigation, they told Harold there's no DNA to be tested in her case. He didn't know that. Of course not. He was shocked. And when he found this out, he was done. He'd been ruined by this woman. Yeah. And he was ready to come home. On the night of January 17th, 2013, he spoke with his daughter and told her that everything would be sorted out in a week. And to her, he seemed optimistic, happy for the first time in a long time. 76-year-old Harold Henry was done being lied to and taken advantage of. He was going home to his son, daughter, and grandchildren in North Dakota. I'm sorry if I said South Dakota. It was North Dakota. I'm sorry. His plan on the 19th of January was to say goodbye to his friend Charles. You know, the guy who was married to the other woman? Yeah. They had built a really good friendship. The two were supposed to meet for coffee, but when Harold didn't show up, Charles went to his apartment where he found Harold on the ground in his front entryway. He rushed to get help, but it would be of no use. Harold Henry had died. What did he die of? In his apartment, all of his bags were packed. The letters that Ellen had written him over the years were in the trash. There was a single note left. 
it seemed that Harold had written it with shaking hands. It read, Think I'm having a heart attack. Cremate me. His children asked for everything in the apartment to be held, but they didn't agree with the ruling that there had been no foul play in his death. He never smoked or drank, and it was his mind they'd been worried about, not his body. His son had the Justice of the Peace order a toxicology report, and in it, they found that he had toxic levels of Benadryl in his system. It's very odd. Okay. Because of the findings, an autopsy was ordered. The results showed that Harold had suffered from a neck injury and his stomach contents contained 355 milligrams of the active ingredient in Benadryl. Based on those numbers, he had to have taken over a dozen tablets. And the medical examiner believed all of those tablets mixed in with his high blood pressure medication created a fatal result. His death would be ruled accidental, but he was planning to leave. It couldn't have been a suicide because he was leaving and he wouldn't have taken all of those pills if he even needed it for allergies. It was odd, but there was something even more odd about this. The note that he had left, it was written with a black marker, like a Sharpie. No black marker was found in the apartment. So someone had to have had a, a Sharpie on them and used it? Because if it didn't come from the apartment, where did it come from? Weird. Yeah. In addition to that, Harold had actually told his daughter-in-law that he didn't like taking Benadryl because he hated its side effects. And there was no Benadryl packaging found in his apartment. Not even in his garbage. And his children thought the cremate part was odd. All of their family members had been buried in the same location. To get rid of evidence, the body evidence. And if DeEllen had him murdered, the cremation would make getting all of her payouts easier and stop long-term investigations. Wow. Oh, my God. This poor guy. Uh, Yeah. (sighs) After hearing all of these concerns and understanding the unanswered questions were very real and very troublesome, a questionable death investigation was opened. Okay. That's good. The investigation revealed that Harold had fallen victim not just to DLN's scams, but more. From November of 2010 to July of 2013, and this is so sad, this is like something that needs to be investigated and prosecuted to the full extent of the law. So in that three-year scan, like three-year time frame, two and a half years, he wired over $200,000 to Jamaica and to more money scammers in Florida, Colorado, and Hawaii. They were scamming him. Like, they were saying, oh, you won the lottery, but you just have to give us this amount of money so we can send the car over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because he fell victim once, they kept getting him. Oh, my God. 
when more money was asked for and he began refusing, he was threatened by these people. Those were the threats he was receiving. Okay. And he believed they were true. They said they would murder his kids. He was truly convinced that there was a sniper on the roof of the building next to his apartment. Very immersed in the relationship between Harold and D'Ellen was D'Ellen's daughter, Michelle, who did visit her mother in prison the day Harold died. Like, it's so complicated. And I really urge you guys, if you're interested in in knowing more about it, to read the D Magazine article that was written. But Michelle had a close relationship with Harold. And I don't know her involvement level or what it was or whatever, but Michelle visited her mother on the day that Harold died. Charles also visited his wife, who, and get this, Harold's good friend Charles, who was the sixth husband of the woman that killed her other husband with the shotgun, that woman was good friends with D'Ellen in prison. And when that woman killed her husband with a shotgun, when she went to the hospital, she was admitted to the hospital because she told paramedics that she ingested barbiturates and Benadryl. Wow, there's a lot going on here. I know. And when Charles would go to the prison to visit his wife, he would stay with Harold. So... The question is, did Charles stay with Harold that night? Like, was Harold not alone? And then, yeah, did someone go out of their way to try to drug him with Benadryl? And don't forget the note that's written is written in very shaky handwriting. He might have been having a heart attack when he wrote it, and that would explain the shaky handwriting, or it would explain someone trying to hide their handwriting that's correct also the message is a little odd too because i'm gonna tell you right now if i was having a heart attack i would not be writing cremating i would say (laughs) i love you or something something else and most likely if you're having a heart attack you're not even going to try to do that let's be real yeah i mean i don't even want to think about it but uh i don't think i'd be writing a letter (laughs) yeah or a note whatever well after seeing harold's body charles went to the prison to visit his wife And D'Ellen and Michelle, because Michelle was there visiting her mother, too. And he told them how Harold died. When the investigator spoke to D'Ellen, she denied having a serious relationship with Harold at all. And basically said that whatever he did was on his own accord. She said he was delusional and that she would never be with him. Everything she said was contradicted by all of the letters that she sent him and he sent to her. In them, she confessed her love for him, asked him for money, demanded to know what money he had, and discussed a future with him. Acting as her mother's power of attorney, Michelle tried to collect on Harold's estate. You gotta be kidding me, right? Because everything was left to her in his will. (sighs) Oh my God. But luckily, there was nothing left because the other scammers got there first. Even the annuity. So I wish that money would have went to his children, but I'm glad it didn't go to them. That is true, I guess. I just feel so bad for these people. I know. this. It, but Man. there was no marker at the scene 
and no Benadryl wrappings, but he died of a Benadryl overdose? Come Someone on. Someone could have easily have crushed them up and put him in something to eat or drink. His drink. Yeah. And if and if Charles was staying there the night before or he just she'd hired someone to do this, we don't know. Like could a a friend who had been released from prison said, "Oh, Dylan wanted me to visit you." They had shared a drink together. It could have been so many things. Well, I'm not to speak ill of 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 this gentleman, but I think maybe based on his poor decisions, it, it, I think it's easy just to say that he was easily manipulated, you know. And it's possible that anything anything could have happened. Honestly, yeah. if you know, if anyone was in on this, they could have easily got to him and and persuade him to do a, a multitude of things. No, I agree with that because when he did have his physical. Um, the doctor did say he showed signs of early dementia. Right, and that's that's horrible. And it just goes back this to what I so, said before. This is so sad. She most likely has involvement in this. I don't know to what extent, but regardless. Even if she has nothing to do with his, even if he wasn't murdered, say this was an accident, she still schemed to take all of this man's money yes. away. And that's what I'm getting at. And, 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 and you know, this is this is what she is. This yeah. is her true self, and I really hope that even if there's nothing that ties her to, to his w- very odd death, I, I hope that they uh, see her for what she truly is, and she doesn't get parole. Because a monster. She is. I mean, to do that to someone that is you know, elderly, uh, very vulnerable, mm-hmm. it's just not right. It's, <laughs> it's You have to be worse than scum to do something like this. Yeah. The inquiry into Harold's death was closed. Nothing could be proven. It was an accidental death. But in their grief, Harold's daughter, Deb, joined forces with Sandy's sister, Janet. And the two women are definitely a force to be reckoned with. In 2014, they filed protests at D. Ellen's parole hearing, and she was denied again. According to D. Magazine, Deb would later learn that Charles had lied to investigators. He told them he only knew Harold for a few months, but that was not the case. He knew him for years and would often stay at Harold's apartment when he visited his wife in prison. Deb wanted to know if Charles had been at her father's apartment the night of his death. He had been visiting his wife, after all, that very next day. The shaky writing could indicate that someone was covering up their handwriting. But unfortunately, Deb will never get her answers because Charles passed away in 2017, leaving his entire estate to his wife in prison. Another thing missed in the investigation was that Harold's phone had been used after his death once to access his voicemail. So what did that person delete? Wait, they're going to call this accidental and then that is what's... Well, that came out after. They never looked into that. The The daughter, Deb, found that out after she requested the phone records. So why aren't they going out of their way to re- revoke the accidental part of his death and at least making it an, an uh, un, um, what is that, undetermined? Well, John, there's so many cases like this where... It's just not being touched again because they're overwhelmed with other cases. It's sad. 
It's really sad. Like this entire case, the whole thing from top to bottom. Devastating. It's devastating. It's and it makes me very angry. Yeah. It makes yeah. me extremely angry because to take advantage of someone is and just people horrible. like this exist in the yes. world. Yeah. The Ellen Bella was last denied parole just a few weeks ago on December 27th, 2023. Her next parole hearing will be in December of 2028. But if Deb and Janet have anything to say about it, she'll never get out. Good for them. Sometimes I guess in this world, the best thing is to be your own uh, advocate. And they have done very well, the two of them. So um, I give them credit, the both of them, and staying strong and and determined. Yeah, and really going out of your way and advocating for yourself when you feel like law enforcement isn't because unfortunately it's a squeaky wheel that gets the oil. But see, even in this case, it shows you that you can do whatever you can and you can find the evidence and sometimes it won't even be in your favor, but at least they can, you know, say that they fought for their loved ones and that's what they're doing and continue to do. Yeah. So sad. It really is. Isn't that like it's two cases in one? It is. And there is involvement from her in both of these cases. Correct. From and, prison. From prison. Yeah. Oof. <sighs> Unbelievable. So I figured we'd bring in the new year with a crazy case. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. Okay. Before we go, what we want to do is we want to say thank you. To our new supporters on Patreon. And if you want ad-free episodes or two bonus episodes a month, you can join us at patreon.com slash true crime couple. So we just want to say thank you to Lexi Hatcher, Kristen Day, Jane Stolt, Dipsy, Troy Didamore, Eva Beatty Olson upped her pledge, Natalie Chu, Annie Garcia, Barbie Hagen. Helen Hume, Amila Khan, Joelle Simonson, Tara Sparks, Winter, Laura Chivers, Vic Leado, Rochelle Kuntz, Abraham Hale, Elise, Steph C., Danielle Banton, Melissa Markowski, Brandy Davis, Farai, Seahag, Mingle, Macy Stewart, Carla, Kelly Buffone up to her pledge, Pamela Murphy, Sam Tyrrell, Melissa, Rachel, Kim, Maria Hurtado, and Ashley. Thank you so much, guys, for joining Patreon. And we cannot wait to bring you more episodes this year. And we feel lucky that we get to do so. We This was a super long episode, so we'll do some more reviews next week. I think John's all... You're a little tired. You're a little worn out from that. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty crazy. But we could do that because I'm sure there's going to be a few more. So we can lump them up if you'd like. Yes, that's what we'll do. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.